And welcome to you all. Just to mention that as part of our time of worship this morning, we will be sharing the Lord's Supper together. That will be uh, towards the end. And then at the end of the service, when you're ready to leave, please just stand up and move directly to the exit, keeping a two-meter distance from others. And then uh, later this afternoon, we are meeting again online only this time, continuing to look at Matthew's Gospel. And as I mentioned, I think it was last week, this section of Matthew ties in really closely with what we're looking at in Second Peter. So I encourage you to join us for that. And that will be uh, followed by a coffee time, which is also online. We're joining together to worship God. That's why we've come. And our first song calls us to bless the Lord for all of his goodness. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Peace, holy name. 
Lord God, we thank you for this truth that as your people, it is our privilege to sing your praise, not just today, not just during the years of this life. We thank you it will be our privilege to sing your praise for all of eternity as we experience more and more of your goodness and your love. We thank you that as Christians, our hope is not only for this life. The new life we have in Christ is an incorruptible life. The inheritance we have in Him is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's an inheritance kept in heaven for us. And so this morning... We lift our eyes from the things that are seen, and we want to fix our eyes on what is unseen. We turn our attention from the things that are temporary to the things that are eternal. And as we do that, we ask you to open our eyes. Let us see these eternal things more clearly than ever. Let us be people who live with these unseen things in mind. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the major emphases of Jesus' teaching was the need to be ready for his return. And we're going to have a Bible reading now from Matthew's Gospel where Jesus speaks about his return and that need to be ready. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 24, beginning to read at verse 37. Matthew 24. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be, in, will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. 
Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus said we need to be ready for his return. And then he went to the cross and made a way for us to be ready. He gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when we put our trust in his work on the cross, then we are ready for his return. And our next song celebrates this divine love, the Son of God giving his life for our salvation. My Lord, what love is this?
This past New Year's Eve was a big milestone for me. That was the night I gave my first ever fireworks display. Now, actually, it wasn't that great, but I did manage to do it without blowing myself up. And the neighbors did watch from their windows. Maybe they were hoping I'd blow myself up. But the one disappointment of the night was that one of my fireworks was a dud. It didn't go off. I lit the fuse, I took a few steps back, and nothing. I gave it a bit more time, still nothing. Thankfully, they weren't all like that, but that one firework promised so much on the box, and I did read the box. But in reality, it didn't deliver what it promised. And I mention that because some people think Christianity is like that dud firework. It promises something spectacular, but it never delivers. Specifically, it promises a spectacular return of Jesus Christ, bringing sublime blessing for those who belong to him and bringing terrifying judgment for those who don't. But in the eyes of many people, Christianity is a dud. It doesn't do what it says on the box. The world has been waiting for 2,000 years, more in fact, and the fireworks still haven't gone off. So it's time to pronounce Christianity dead. It's a common idea. But this morning we're going to see it's not a new idea. It's been doing the rounds since the earliest days of Christianity. And not only is this an old idea, it's also badly misunderstanding the actual teaching of Christianity. So if you have a Bible, turn with me again to 2 Peter. This morning we come to chapter 3 of this letter and to what I think is the main point of the letter. Peter in this letter already has called Christians to pursue godly lives. He has warned Christians in detail about false teachers and now he gets to the heart of what he wants us to take to heart. Peter wants us to live our lives with a life-changing awareness of the sure and certain fire. So turn to chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 1 to 10. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged 
and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. This is God's Word. And I think there's a clear indication here that Peter is getting to the heart of what he wants to say, because he begins to use a term he hasn't used up to this point. Four times in chapter 3, he refers to his readers as dear friends, literally beloved And two of those references are in the verses we just read. The first of them comes in verse 1. Peter has a genuine love for his readers, and his love gives him an urgency as he speaks about Jesus' return. Earlier in the letter, he mentioned his desire to remind them of what they already know, and he repeats that here in verse 1. And again, as he did earlier, he directs us in verse 2 to the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and to the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. I think what Peter has in mind here are the Old Testament prophecies about the future and Jesus' command to be ready for the future. Why does Peter want us to recall those things specifically? Well, he wants us to recall them because they are being called into question. Look at verse 3 again. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. When the New Testament talks about the last days, it means the time between Jesus' first and second coming. Whether those days last 2,000 years or whether they last 10,000 years, they are the last days because the next great event on God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ. Jesus has done the work of dying for the sins of the world. He has been raised again as the guarantee of new life for the world. The final piece of Jesus' mission is to return and judge the world. The time between his resurrection and his return are therefore the last days. And throughout the last days, there will be scoffers, Peter says. A scoffer is somebody who mocks. They make fun. Scoffer is someone who insults the honor of another person. And the specific kind of scoffing Peter has in mind is the kind that insults Jesus' honor and the honor of his Father by saying the promises Jesus made about his return 
were just empty promises. They were dud promises. They were like fireworks that didn't go off. In the context of this letter, we can be pretty sure these scoffers include the false teachers Peter has described in chapter 2. One of the reasons they are so arrogant, one of the reasons they live such unrestrained lives following their own evil desires, is because they're sure Jesus will never deliver on his promises. There will never be a judgment day. These scoffers feel secure, despite their sinful lives, because the world keeps on spinning. Life keeps on rolling, just like it always has. But Peter wants to blow away that complacent attitude. And at the same time, he wants Christians to be reassured that it is a foolish attitude to doubt Jesus' promises. Imagine for a moment you're watching one of those people who clean the outside windows on skyscrapers. When I watch something like that, it makes my toes go cold. You can probably picture one of those rickety little platforms that they use suspended 40 or 50 or 60 floors above the ground. And then imagine that window cleaner for just a moment forgets where she is. And without thinking what she's doing, she pauses to admire her work. And as she does so, she takes a step backwards. She takes a step into thin air. And then imagine as that lady plummets towards the pavement, she calms herself by saying over and over, so far, so good. So far, so good. Would you say that window cleaner is being sensible? Does she have good grounds for thinking her situation is okay just because she hasn't hit the pavement yet? No, that lady is deluding herself. The pavement is an unavoidable reality. The pavement is coming. And so is the mess she's going to make when she hits it. And here in our passage, Peter's point is that people who find security in the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet, they are just as foolish as our window cleaner. Complacent all the way from the 50th floor down to the pavement. Peter confronts the outlook that dismisses Judgment Day by saying, so far, so good. That approach is nothing more than the delusion of security. Now, the scoffers Peter has in mind here happen to be religious scoffers. They're insulting the honor of Jesus, they're mocking his promise to return in judgment, but they still accept the reality of a creator. You see that in verse 4. They're saying, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. They're religious scoffers. And Peter responds to them on that basis. Although, as we'll see, Peter's point applies equally to those who deny the existence of a creator. Peter attacks the complacency of these scoffers by showing how formation, flood, 
and fire prove the reality of catastrophe. I need to explain that, of course. We often use the word catastrophe to refer to anything we consider to be a disaster. So it might be, for example, our political party losing an election. We might describe that as a catastrophe, along with a whole lot of other things that happen to us or happen around us. But the word catastrophe does have a much more specific use. It's used to refer to a sudden and violent change in the earth. So scientists will sometimes speak about earth's catastrophic past. They're not talking about the wars carried out by humans or the other disastrous things done by humans. They're talking about the violent changes the earth itself has been through. And there is universal acknowledgement from Christians and non-Christians, the earth has been through violent changes. It does have a catastrophic past. Here Peter speaks about it in biblical terms. The scoffers are saying everything goes on as it always has done. But Peter challenges that in verse 5. When they say that, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being. And the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By any account, the formation of the earth came about catastrophically. The earth as we know it emerged through forceful change. As Christians, we believe that forceful change was brought about by God's Word, as Peter says. Genesis chapter 1 gives us a fuller account of that. In verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1, the earth is described as initially formless. Then the rest of the chapter describes how God formed it into the planet we know today. That forming of the earth involved tremendous upheaval. The earth you and I stand on today began with significant change. And, Peter says, it has experienced significant change since then too. Back in chapter 2, Peter has already mentioned Noah and the worldwide flood. Here he refers to it again as evidence of earth's catastrophic past. And notice carefully the words Peter uses in verse 6. The earth was deluged, that's another word for flooded. The world was deluged and destroyed. Some translations say the world was deluged and it perished. That's very significant for what Peter says later in the chapter. Because whatever Peter means here by the word destroyed... Clearly, he does not mean this world was utterly annihilated. After all, it's still here. We're sitting on it. It's still there underneath our feet. And Peter knows that. So when he says the earth was destroyed, he means it was violently altered. It was significantly remodeled. It went through a catastrophe. Just keep that in mind for later on in our passage. But the main point here is that it's naive to live your life thinking 
everything is going to go on and on just like it is now. The earth has undergone violent upheaval before, and we must be prepared for it to happen again. That's true even if you're an atheist. But the Bible gives us more insight into the violent upheavals of the earth. It tells us the earth was formed by God's word. It was later devastated through flood, again because of God's word. And we can count on God's word when it tells us there's going to be a further comparable upheaval in the future. Look at that in verse 7. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Even if you're an atheist, you cannot deny earth's catastrophic past. So you have good reason to consider the Bible's warning about its catastrophic future. And if you're a Christian, surrounded by scoffers who are denying Jesus' return, then consider what God's Word has brought about in the past. And have no doubt, no matter what the scoffers say, God's Word will also bring about the future judgment He has promised. But the fact remains, Jesus promised He would come back, and so far He hasn't. Peter has just told us, God is well capable of doing what He promised. So why hasn't He? What's the holdup? In verses 8 and 9, Peter answers that question. He points us to eternal perspective and patient mercy, the truth about delayed judgment. Look, first of all, at verse 8 and the beginning of verse 9. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. As human beings, you and I can see so little. Each of us has had only a short lifetime to observe the world directly. Even the most experienced among us only have 80 or 90 years of experience. And even if we were to give ourselves to studying what books can tell us about the whole span of human history, even if we could master world history, that span of time is still just a tiny pinprick in terms of eternity. We see so little. But God, on the other hand, sees the full picture. His perspective is not limited to a few decades. It's not limited even to a few millennia. God has the eternal perspective. So the events of a day here on earth might be seen by God as the culmination actually of a thousand years of events. Like the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. To us, that was a work of hours on the cross. 
But in reality, from God's perspective, those hours on the cross were the climax of a long divine mission to provide a savior for humanity. From God's perspective, that one day on the cross was the work of millennia. On the other hand, the last thousand years of British history, with all of its huffing and puffing, all of its battles and its charters, its list of kings and queens and dynasties, from God's perspective, the history we are so proud of might only be worth a day in terms of its eternal significance. So you and I dare not look at things from our own severely limited perspective and then accuse God of moving too slow or, for that matter, moving too fast. You and I are just not qualified to judge that. But Peter has more to say about this because while it's true we cannot pass judgment on God's timing, we can be absolutely sure about God's purpose. Look again at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We cannot see time as God sees it, but we do need to grasp this. When God delays his judgment, he does it out of patient mercy. In his mercy, he is giving opportunity for men, women, and children to turn from their sin and find forgiveness and life in Jesus. And this is not a new insight that Peter's been given here. This is an aspect of God's character he revealed long, long ago. The book of Exodus records how Moses asked God to show his glory. And in response to that, God proclaimed his character. God's character is his glory. And this is what Moses heard from the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. There is more to God's character, of course, he goes on in that passage to proclaim himself the God who punishes the guilty. He does bring judgment on evil. What kind of God would he be if he ignored evil and wickedness? And yet, he has always been the God who is slow to anger. He has always been the God of patient mercy. In fact, if we read the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we might think that God's patience goes above and beyond all reasonable bounds. He holds back his judgment for generation after generation to the point where, as we read it, we can get frustrated. When is he going to do something about this mass of evil and wickedness? But that is our God willing to patiently withhold his judgment. Even to the point where he's open to accusations of unrighteousness. 
because of his failure to punish sin. The Apostle Paul makes that point in Romans chapter 3. And Peter says here in verse 9, God's patience has a loving, compassionate purpose. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I appreciated the things that Steve said last Sunday night about the compassion of our God. That compassion that was shown in the picture Jesus gave us of himself as a mother hen longing to gather her chicks under her wings. It's the same compassionate longing Peter's talking about here. Let's not despise that compassion. If you're not a Christian, please realize it wasn't, if it wasn't for God's patient compassion, you would already be in hell. Don't despise his patience. Let it lead you to repentance. And those of us who are Christians, let's realize we have a responsibility. God's patience is giving us time to share the good news we have. The good news that, yes, judgment is coming, but God has provided a Savior from judgment. God is not holding back the judgment so you and I can follow this year's Premier League all the way to its exciting conclusion. God is not holding back His judgment so we can all get our vaccines and get out of lockdown finally. The only reason devastating fires of judgment have not yet fallen on this earth is so you and I can have a little more time to share the message of Jesus. Let's not fritter away the opportunities God in his patience is giving us. This week, I encourage you to speak to that person you've been meaning to speak to. Who cares if they get offended with you? Who cares if they laugh at you? Speak to them while God still holds back his judgment. Because God will not hold back his judgment forever. Look at verse 10. After speaking about God's patience, Peter then says in verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. What's being described here? Well, earlier in the passage, Peter compared the coming judgment by fire to the previous judgment by water in Noah's time. So we're being told the coming fires of judgment will bring catastrophe to the earth just as the worldwide flood did. The worldwide flood was a purifying catastrophe. Through the flood, God wiped evil from the earth in order to start over again with Noah and his family. And in a similar way, the coming fire of judgment will be a purifying fire. 
The heavens and the earth is a way of talking about all of creation. It will be purged of all its corruption. God's fire of judgment will be a cleansing fire, a refining fire. It will renew the heavens and the earth, not annihilate them. But that doesn't take away from the fact this will be a catastrophic, violent upheaval. You can see that here in the description Peter gives. In verse 10, he's picking up on prophecies in Isaiah that speak about the stars in the sky dissolving, the heavens rolling up like a scroll. I think that's behind the statement here that the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. Those same descriptions appear again in the book of Revelation. You can find them in Revelation chapter 6. And in verse 10, Peter also calls this time of catastrophe the day of the Lord. That day is referred to about 20 times in the Old Testament. And usually it's described with these same images of violent, catastrophic upheaval. And next week we'll think more about what's on the other side of that upheaval for God's people. But the final point for us to see in these verses is that the coming fire will lay bare everything done on the earth. For some reason, older versions of the NIV left out the word done. They obscured the fact that this is talking about deeds being exposed. But that is certainly the meaning of the original text. And the newer version of the NIV has it right. The coming fire will strip off it will peel back anything and everything that might hide or conceal the truth. Everything will be exposed. Everyone will be exposed. We will all be seen for what we are. We will be seen for exactly what we are. And ultimately, it will be seen that there are only two kinds of people. There will be those who've had their sin and evil judged and punished already because they trusted in Jesus who took it all in their place. And there will be those who will pay for their own sin and evil because they rejected Jesus the Savior. In the end, that will be the only distinction that matters. Not what we earned during our life, not how popular we were, not what qualifications or titles we had, but what we did with Jesus. It's the only distinction that will matter. God's fire of judgment will expose the truth about us. And it will be a sudden exposure. Peter says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It's a description that occurs regularly in the New Testament. Jesus used it. We saw that earlier in Matthew 23. That means there will not be a two-week warning before judgment day. There will not be a 30-minute buzzer before Jesus comes. God's word is our permanent warning every day. 
God's word is our buzzer. It tells us now is the time to come to repentance. Because when the fire comes, we will be suddenly exposed. And that moment will be the end of all delusions. Those who have refused to accept the good news about Jesus and respond to him in faith, those who've lived their lives telling themselves, so far, so good, so far, so good, their delusion of security is going to vanish in a moment, in an instant. And they will be seen for what they are, men and women lost without Jesus. On the other hand, those who've taken God's word seriously, who've put their hope in Jesus, who have lived for his return, they might have been scoffed at their whole lives. They might have been seen as the family fool, the nutcase at work. But on that day, they will be seen for what they are, children of God. And they will stand untouched by the fire because Jesus already took the fire in their place. One of the biggest challenges we face as Christians is living in the light of this truth. Living in the light of this truth in a world that thinks it's moved beyond it. The reality of God's coming judgment seems like a joke to many people. Maybe to most people. But let's realize it has always been that way. We've seen that earlier in this letter when we heard about Noah. His belief in the coming judgment by water in his day, it didn't get much traction in his day and age. It was so much easier for people to laugh off Noah's message and just keep saying to themselves, well, there's never been a flood before. So far, so good. So far, so good. That was the case in Noah's day. And in this passage, we see even as the New Testament was being written, Christians were surrounded by scoffers who laughed at the idea of judgment. It's always been that way. So we should never be surprised by the world's laughter. And we shouldn't be swayed by it either. God has brought violent upheaval to the earth before. We can trust his promise to bring it again. G.K. Chesterton said, the church always seems to be behind the times when it is really beyond the times. It is waiting till the last fad shall have seen its last summer. One day the diversions that people live for are going to come to an end. The delusions of security they hold on to are going to have seen their last summer. Their day will be done. And the day of the Lord will come. Let's be ready. And that is the beauty of this passage. 
It tells us about God's sure and certain fire, but it is not here to drive us to despair. It's here to drive us to our compassionate God who offers us salvation from fire. And if we are ready, if we're Christians, we face the future without fear of judgment. But the realization that we're saved from the coming fire doesn't lead us to pride. It doesn't make us think we're superior to those who are heading for the judgment. No, our own salvation fills us with thankfulness and praise to our God for his compassion towards us, for his patience with us, that he would delay judgment so I could be saved, so you could be saved. passage moves us to praise and the musicians are going to lead us in a song of praise to our good and gracious king it's a song we haven't done before but it gives us i think the words to respond to this passage to glorify this god who not only brings judgment but who also offers us salvation from judgment he is the good and gracious king
This good and gracious King invites us to gather around this table and celebrate together his gift of life. It's life that comes to you and me through the death of Jesus Christ. So if you're trusting in Jesus as your Savior and if you're seeking to live for his glory, then please join us in this meal. Otherwise, I'd ask you, please, just let the bread and wine pass you by when they're being served. 
This table is a reminder of God's great compassion. It's a reminder of what that compassion cost him as well. The bread represents the broken body of God's only son. And the wine represents his blood poured out for our salvation. Our God is the king in need of nothing. But in his great love, he offers us everything. Forgiveness for our sins, a welcome in God's family, and a truly secure future. All of this is ours because of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. So I'd ask the servers to come now, and as they're distributing the bread to you, I'd encourage you just to use this time to bring your own thanks and praise to God for his mercy to you. And then when we've all been served, we'll eat the bread together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. Let's eat together and give thanks.
Now I'd ask the servers if they would distribute the wine, and again we'll keep the wine and drink together. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can look forward to his return, not with fear, but with great joy. Let's drink together. Thanks be to God for his gift beyond words. Amen. Thank you. 